have here. In July, my father went to take the waters and left me with my mother and elder brother, a prey to the blinding white heat of the summer's day. Dizzy with light, we dipped into that enormous book of holidays, its pages blazing with sunshine and scented with the sweet melting pulp of golden pears. Ah, that's interesting. Oh, I didn't realize you were there. Hello. Hello, Sean? Scott. I'm oh. I'm hovering in this time and in all times surrounding us here. In the multiversity, we are existing everywhere except for the multiverse where the multiverse doesn't exist because if 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 all possibilities exist in a ninth dimensional structure, that means that there would also be a world where it doesn't. Mm, the inherent contradictions of infinitude. But what I was just reading was um, the beginning of of a story by Bruno Schultz. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Bruno Schultz, but he was a Polish writer and painter, and he wrote many short stories and and little writings and unfortunately he died in the holocaust um but he also did write a story called the hourglass well he it was called the sanatorium under the sign of the hourglass which would one day be turned into the film the hourglass sanatorium in 1973 the polish surrealist film directed by Wojciech Jerzy Haas, which is one of the films that we're talking about today. Yeah, it's, he has this really wonderful, poetic uh, sense of, of language. And to even for Haas to, like, even adapt the... I, I, you know, there's... I love the word phantasmagoria... Mm-hmm. But I, but it's like it's one of those words that you only use at, because you like sounding smart. But this movie, The Hourglass Sanitarium, is perfectly described as a phantasmagoric film. It's it's a it's a in my opinion, when you think of a film that both has emotional depth, but also a psychedelic tooth to it. Mm-hmm. This is one of the perfect ones. I will venture to say that this might be a perfect movie, especially of its style. And again, its ability to marry both depth and whimsy, how it's able to take you through a journey while also being heartfelt and emotional you know the the novel is is a collection of um short stories that almost feel like dreams mm-hmm. and it's just based on this man reflecting on the death of his father which in the movie is also basically the crux of of where we go H- how would you describe for you um 
the Hourglass Sanitarium. And were you familiar with um, Haas beforehand? I know many people love the Saragossa manuscript film. Yeah, I was familiar with Haas through the Saragossa manuscript, and I was familiar with that through, you know, Martin Scorsese's evangelizing of, of that movie and Haas's work and of Polish cinema in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so this is the, my first time seeing it, uh, seeing it for this podcast. And, you know, I was just instantly struck by its, its imagery, its ability to, like you said, contrast whimsy with incredibly dark and disturbing subject matter because, you know, inherent in the story, you know, it's about sort of the, like, disintegration of one's own identity and, you know, through that Jewish identity. And it's it's written by somebody who died in the Holocaust, but it, the film itself is made very much in a post-World War II Soviet bloc world. And so, you know, Haas's work like integrating those two time periods I think is like perfectly suited for the story's subject matter and even just the opening images of our main character Yosef on the train and the, the this blind conductor with a candlelight lantern around his chest it just it's so striking and evocative and what is your History? Do you have do you have any history with uh, Christian mysticism or Jewish mysticism? Uh, not personally as a, a worshiper. I mean, I've I've read some Christian mystics, you know, like Hildegard of Bingen and that kind of thing. But I, I do not have a, a familiarity with Jewish mysticisms, certainly. So you know, obviously, I'm no scholar, but Jewish mysticism, much of it uh, is based upon, you know, the Sephiroth and the the Tree of Life and the concordant crossroads between all of them and how they all connect. And it's very complex, and I'm not going to pretend or try to explain them. But for me, there's a part of this movie that feels like it's taking a path of phantasmal and and catechistic um, understanding that it's that it that it's that the path is not what it seems to be. Yeah, you know, because so many times throughout the film, we have our protagonists like looking back and he sees himself or he suddenly becomes a different version of himself or maybe even another person. Um, doorways lead to places that they couldn't conceivably lead into. Uh, you know, dreams and reality intermix. Time layers over itself. Um, so yeah, I could definitely see a mystical interpretation of this film for sure. Yes, I mean, for me, this is a deeply spiritual film. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, it's just the the whole story of of his, of his, you know, 
journey of grief and journey of life. And that, you know, I, I read somewhere, the, you know, that the sanitarium is a parallel dimension that allows its inmates to pro prolong their lives artificially. That's something that's been suggested. And that we're maybe in this limbo state where um, there's a Schrodinger's cat effect where perhaps his father is both dead and alive at the same time as long as he's there, the son and is is traveling through different planes of the mind um you know i don't know you just don't get this in in cinema so much and and when you do i feel like it's often way more cheeky or or they are they don't know what they're trying to say you can tell the difference between for me a conceptual film that is challenging and difficult but knows what it's doing versus someone trying to just be like i'm i'm special i'm different you know, and it would be much easier i could name movies that that do that that are like i'm just showing how deep i am or i'm just being shocking for the sake of shocking but i don't think it's necessary to do that nor do i need to be like watch this movie or watch this movie or or watch this movie but when you think of that there was a time where you know films like this and films by Tarkovsky and that films by like Alejandro Jodorowsky were just being made and people were like oh shit okay word yeah um and Haas himself said you know just speaking to what you're talking about about like filmmakers who um, actually have intent with, with this sort of spiritual seeking. Um, in the dream that is a film, one often has a singular time loop. Things of the past, issues long gone, are overlaid onto current reality. The subconscious invades reality. Dreams thus allow us to reveal, to show the future. I reject matters, ideas, themes only significant to the present day. Art film dies in an atmosphere of fascination with the present. Um, and, and that sort of goes along with his um, sort of discordance with like his a lot of his contemporaries were um, sort of uh, obsessed with like what was called socialist realism, whereas mm -hmm. you know, th this is certainly not a, a realist film. And so he was pointedly going against that. And so, so his rebellion was to, you know, involve like whimsy and, and magical thinking in, in, into his films. And it also allowed him by, you know, adapting works, uh, adapting literary works to critique uh, the, you know, communist uh, regime in, in a way uh, that would, um, you know, prevent him from being jailed. But and, was... and, and adapting books by authors that were murdered in the holocaust yeah you know yeah so e even with that it's a statement against totalitarianism and yeah poland um really has had it rough over the last several centuries uh you know during the time that this story was written it was divided up between, you know, Germany and the Soviet Union, and that was part of the non-aggression pact they had in 39. 
And then, of course, war broke out, and, you know, Poland was ravaged both with war and through the Holocaust. And then, of course, it became, it was acquiesced by the Allies to the Soviet Union. Um, so, for artists like Haas, I think, rebellion was both, like, a necessity for the art that they were making, but also something incredibly risky. Because even this film was famously smuggled out of the Eastern Bloc to, uh, into the Cannes Film Festival, I think. And if legend is true, then Ingrid Bergman was one of the people who was instrumental in actually getting it out of Poland. Do you know the reason why Bruno Schultz died? I do, yeah. A, a very petty and spiteful disagreement between two SS officers. So two SS officers had, a, um, how do I say this? They had sponsored some Jews that they would allow to live because a, a Gestapo officer liked the artwork and the writing of Bruno Schultz and allowed him to be his personal project because that was the world that we lived in. This is a world, man, that's not a hundred years ago. Shit's still happening in this world. Yeah. The This year, this week where stuff like this happens. He, he was like, I... A Gestapo officer wanted to have his own personal Jewish writer and artist that he could take care of and a pet project. And as Mr. Schultz, who is a, a brilliant writer, I mean, his please seek out his short stories because um, that's really all you can find. And he was he was walking home and 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 was shot by another Gestapo officer over a loaf of bread and it was apparently in revenge because he felt that the other SS officer had murdered one of his Jews that he was taking care of. So I think it's very interesting when you look at the complexities of Poland and the and Jewish people before the Holocaust, during the Holocaust, after the Holocaust, um, how many the 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 notion that's often presented that that Polish people were were particularly unkind to Jewish people during the Holocaust when that is not all completely true many of the righteous people who who helped Jews some of the highest populations of them are in fact in Poland um, and some of the best uh, some of the best films dealing with the, you know, shell casings and, and, and endings of the Holocaust are, were done by, by Polish directors. I, I'm forgetting the name of one of them, but I, I, I promise I will find it before this conversation is, is, is over. Um, and then you have, you know, Hans, who's, who's like, I'm going to make this story just about a man trying to understand the death of his father and create this fantastical tale. What is the movie? What is, tell me the movie for you. Um, 
it's one man's journey, yeah, like you said, to understand the death of his father, but I think it's also, you know, Haas's journey to understand the the desolation of European Jewish life uh, in the second half of the 20th century, because not only after the Holocaust, but now, you know, Eastern Europe is under the boot of the Soviet Union, which is ostensibly uh, a monoculture as, you know, required by the state. Um, and, and so this is his attempt to, like, understand that, get at the root of his own culture, of, of his own identity. And it's it's about how, you know, like he, he said in that quote, how the past and the future live all at once within us right now. And, you know, how our legacy, um, as difficult or as inspiring as, as they may be, you know, is, is around and, and with us. Um, and, you know, that speaks to how his father is, is both dead and alive, how Joseph's identity continues to change. Um, you know, he even says sometime in the movie, uh, why do I get the feeling that I've been here before, a long time ago? What if we know all the landscapes that we come across in life? Can anything new happen? So he's asking, like, the most essential existential questions. And then there's also this other layer of, like, he's Joseph, son of Jacob, and he's constantly being asked about his dreams and what his dreams mean. And, and he's at, and then Joseph himself is asking, is, is he responsible for his own dreams? Um, so there's just layers and layers of, of metaphor and, and meaning and fantastical imagery throughout this movie. And... When I was rewatching it, I've, I've also been rereading the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Mm-hmm. There's an there is an excellent, excellent version translated by Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, J.K. Rowling could never <laughs> Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh my lord, um, her writing has really been influencing me lately and so she has like little footnotes and stuff and um you know one of the writings is living with change uh when the government's dull and confused the people are placid when the government's sharp and keen the people are discontented alas misery lies under happiness and happiness sits on misery alas who knows where it will end nothing is certain the normal changes into the monstrous, the fortunate into the unfortunate, and our bewilderment goes on and on. And so the wise shape without cutting, square without sawing, true without forcing, they are the light that does not shine. Let that marinate in your shine box. So I feel that in this movie because it's like all these things that are happening and not happening. And um, the film that I was referencing earlier is Ida by Powell Pawlikowski. Yeah. Uh, have you seen it? I have. I, I love Ida. Yeah, that's an incredibly powerful film. It's It, it broke me in Saskia. Uh, when we watched it, I wasn't expecting it. Uh, 
every once in a while I'll be like, how are they going to tell another film about the Holocaust? You know? Mm-hmm. And then occasionally you'll have a movie like Ida or the Phoenix or something and just totally be blown out the water because there's always there actually there always are new stories to tell. Yeah, that movie was a real um, is very emblematic of the importance, at least for me, of a physical art house cinema, because I do have a fairly local independent theater and I just had a free Sunday and I was looking at their listings and I didn't know anything about Ida walked into it completely blind and I'll never forget that that, that viewing experience so I'm, I'm very thankful that um, movie theaters like that can still give us that experience go to your local movie theaters yeah. especially if you if you don't live I mean if you live in a co- if you live in a popular city obviously go to your ones but if you live in in any city that maybe has one artsy theater do what you can buy a gift certificate yeah just just try to make sure you get to go there whenever you can um because when they close they don't reopen at least most of the time and uh you know Ida which is also the name of my beloved grandmother um it's about you know the world in Europe post post the Holocaust and what that does to people. You know, it's about a, a an orphan who's orphaned as an infant during the during World War Two. She's about to become a nun, and then stuff happens. Yeah. And it all it all does it all does sort of connect. And you know the our our podcast Cinema Eschaton. Is is one where we try to connect the dots and spiritual movies and movies that may have left leanings and and in this one I'm like, huh? Why did I recommend this movie? Well, answer that question, John. Um, here's what a contemporary film critic said about the movie: um, It wasn't uh, Adam Garbitz. It uh, wasn't the film director's intention to adapt Schultz's prose in a literal manner, but rather to capture its eschological, eschological climate. So, uh, back in 1973, film critics were using the name of our podcast to describe this movie. Layers of time, Scott. It happened. It happens. It's happening. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you, um, what do you make of the frequent use of colonial imagery in the movie? So you, throughout it, we see some costumed figures in like 18th, 19th century Prussian getup. Um, some of them are like waxworks dolls or, or sort of automatons, and, and some of them are like... A, black men dressed up like Prussian soldiers. So I'm just curious, like, what do you make of that, that sort of like boys own adventure version of colonialism in in this film? I think it is that it's, it's trying to make sense of colonialism 
using the art style that the film is using and maybe not knowing enough about it, maybe not knowing how to properly tell the story or maybe being afraid to tell the story, maybe by being abstract, maybe by being coy, you're able to escape some of the risks that making certain art could be when these pieces were being made. Um, what is your take of it? You know, yeah, I just thinking about it now, I couldn't help but, you know, see how once that imagery sort of comes and goes, then we're sort of um, transported to like a, a an almost post Jewish pogrom city street that Joseph emerges out of. So instead of the like adventurous, you know, jungle soldiers st- uh, like stampeding through the wilderness, it's soldiers stampeding through a, a desolated city. Um, so, you know, I think you have Joseph's identity of, as a boy, reading these adventure stories of daring do and then contrasting that with what that kind of soldiery looks like in in reality or at least uh-huh. in his in father's memory and in its absolute horror um and you know and this is certainly a movie that benefits from rewatching and rewatching and rewatching and that is not a connection i made on my first viewing of the film, but as I watch it again, and as I'm thinking about it more, and as I'm talking about it with you, I'm just getting, like, more, I'm just making more and more connections uh, about the movie. And uh, John Zorn made a, an album about it in 2005. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, it's worth checking out. Um and I also had you watch another movie for this episode. Oh, uh, r- real quick. I was just so taken by the whole concept of the sanatorium. Joseph describes mm. it as um, vomited secondhand time. I, uh, I love that. Yeah, so th- these, you know, the Schrodinger state that his father lived in, it's... It, it, it like it has no nourishment. It has no real value, um, and I think that goes back to Haas's sort of rejection of the obsession with the present. That if we just concentrate on on the now, time becomes meaningless for us. And so I think he's in, with that very trenchant line. He's trying to encourage us to take a more perspicacious view of of our existence, and I think the, the film. Uh, accomplishes that right because you're also there's this limbo there's this what is happening there's this repetition yet you're in a place which is designed for the recuperation of health theoretically in a sanitarium you're there to recuperate yeah but there's so much stopping and starting and stopping and starting and timelessness that there is no recuperation. And also, I am being purposefully vague a little bit because if someone has not watched this movie, I don't think we've spoiled much. 
You should watch it. Yeah. Occasionally it shows up. I Was it difficult for you to find? Um n- no. I mean it's 10 years ago it would have been impossible, but now it's it's easy-ish to, to find. It, it it gets a DVD release every once in a while. Mm-hmm. But I don't is it on any streaming services right now? Um, it was on one, but I can't remember which one. So it's worth, it's worth searching out. I feel like if you find a DVD that's under $30, just, just get it. And then you'll watch it. You'll watch it more than once. I'm starting to regret a little bit that, that I didn't. Well, I wish I had collected some more movies. I, I own about 10 and I I see the writing on the wall with streaming and streaming is great but it also controls the canon yeah and sometimes it just erases the importance of certain people due to access I've said this before but you know you know are you familiar with the rap band the rap group de la soul yes and how one of their albums was just like not available forever. Most of oh, their first four yeah. albums were were really difficult to find. So there's a whole generation of people who are learning about old school rap that weren't hearing that music. Whereas 10 years beforehand, you could not have a conversation about um, the the parts of rap that De La Soul come from without discussing De La Soul. They, they were sort of sucked out of the canon, sucked out of the conversation due to availability. I'm sure that also may happen. You know, you're, you're very into metal music and many types of metal. And, and I'm sure that if there's no way to find this music, people might forget of the importance of it. Yeah, but I I honestly can't think of a situation where a band as important as De La Soul in the metal community had their discography become suddenly unavailable. Um, so, like, that'd be a pretty severe uh, breach of propriety. Because I, I, I don't know... I don't know culturally how how it is in hip hop, but I think in metal there is such, and this is its advantages and disadvantages. But there is such a reverence for what came before um, that I think there's always going to be people sort of enshrined in amber, like those classic bands. And and so even though De La Soul came about in the in the nineties, like I can't imagine like a band like Pantera or a Corrosion of Conformity um, having their their discography not available. It that's the, that'd be like unthinkable to to the metal community. How do most metal community people listen to their music? Um, uh, right now, um, I think there really is a push for Bandcamp. Um, just because I, I think uh, passionate metal fans know that Spotify is basically theft. 
Um, Essentially. And, yeah, spot Bandcamp and vinyl. And, and I think what's really encouraging to me is that in metal, there still is the album tour cycle, which I don't okay. I don't know if that exists in any other genre of music, but, like, metal, metal bands are still releasing full albums um, and then touring to support those albums. And it's it's really great to see a band put out, you know, a 50-minute piece of art that's meant to be listened to from beginning to end. Yeah. I say all this to say because sometimes I'll be on Reddit and I'll be looking at a, you know, a post on the Criterion Collection like, oh, I'm looking for some movies that do X, Y, Z, you know, mm-hmm. and I'll write a really thoughtful post of movies that I think do that. And they'll be like, oh, well, none of these are on Criterion. Like, th- these are some deep cuts, you know, how, you know, like, so if it's not vetted by criterion or milestone or whatever it it's not getting the love and the prosperity and posterity that it deserves yes that is the real like sort of catch 22 with criterion is because it's so known as being the prestige label that the mere fact that your movie exists on it imbues it with prestige and not being on criterion means it's not up to to snuff but right when that's totally yeah but there you know there's criterion like like there's there's indicator there's shot factory there's vinegar syndrome and, and if you're a horror fan severin like these are all great labels who are doing great work to restore film that is inaccessible to such to most of the of the population and bringing back art that that's been forgotten because yeah before there was this big push to restore um polish film um you know a lot of these um a lot of the, the generate of Wojciechowski's generation that like those movies were just non-existent to 90% of the world um and I think it's Yeah when I when I saw Sarah Gossett manuscript mm-hmm. It was because my friend found a copy on the internet. Yeah. That he had to like, he was not sure if it was even going to show up because it was a crapshoot because he found like a random European website that, you know, and he had to get the special type of DVD and stuff. This is, you know, so... I don't want these movies to get lost because I think these films are significant and because I can't totally understand. I totally can't get my finger on why this film is an important spiritual film about colonialism, but, but it is, and I want more people to see it. And I think that is, that is a, a net positive and, and Criterion is not the beginning and the end when it comes to foreign film or independent film or artistic film, though I do think they do a good job. And I think they've done really good jobs at responding to criticism mm-hmm. when 
when they were told that their collection of of you know directors of color was really lacking they they worked on it when you know like they they respond to to criticism which i think is is really important and since then they've added some really great titles yeah for sure and it also it, it certainly behooves them to diversify their catalog but it's also not criterion job to be the end all and be all of of film preservation that's an impossible task and and i think we need to also support other smaller labels who are doing good work and other smaller filmmakers who are putting out great movies now see those movies speaking of someone who's still making movies um another movie i recommended us to watch this week was cemetery of splendor which is a 2015 film uh directed by a, a Thai director who whose nickname is Joe, um, but also known as Pichat Pong. I can't say his last name, and I really don't want to... I'll give it a go. To do Weary Sathakul. How's that? Great. Okay. <laughs> so he is um, considered by many to be probably the greatest um thai filmmaker or one of them you know Mm -hmm. and his his films that he's he's mostly so uncle boon me who can recall his past lives is probably his most known um and it's you know marcus from zebras in america podcast that's his favorite um, Joe film and probably one of his favorite movies. And I think it's a really beautiful, excellent movie. And he also did Mekong Hotel. I mean, he's done a lot of movies. And uh, Memoria just came out last year that was, uh, I thought it was pretty good. But the reason I wanted to talk about Cemetery of Splendor was that when I was watching it, it, it felt like, in some ways, a companion piece to the Hourglass Sanitarium. Um, even though it's about this, you know, epidemic of spirits. Um, I don't know. It just felt like a nice connection. Tell me about the movie from your point of view. Yeah, so um, it's... It's about a sleeping sickness that appears to be striking uh, young men, uh, soldiers, and they go into sort of an on-and-off coma and are put into these uh, uh, open-air hospitals, and they're overseen by nurses, and our main character, Jen, is one of these nurses. And she goes on to discover that the site that the hospital is on was the palace of of a king um, thousands of years ago, and that there was a, a battle there, and the spirits of that battle are now sort of draining the souls of these soldiers, and that's why they they can't wake up for any any length of time. And so it's also about you know 
layers of time on top of each other, um, places and spirits ocu occupying the, the same space, um, liminal spaces b between the, the past and, and the present, uh, and, you know, how, how to, to live with the past in, in the present. So, yeah, I definitely think these two films are, are a, a perfect pairing. What did you think of it? Um, I, I did really like it. Um, I think, like, if, if I had to give my own, like, for my own personal taste, I think Joe's style is, is a bit slow for me. Um, Fair. But there's some undeniably gorgeous imagery in this movie. Just, there are moments where you just want to hang out with these characters as they're on a picnic, you know, on, on their lunch break. Like, it's just so gorgeous that the way he, he films the the Thai landscape, the way he records sounds, the way he shows the characters exploring the geography of, of where they live, um, how they ex explore the city and how they, they're shown just enjoying a meal. It's just so, like... It's so sensorial for a film that is so measured, and it's it's a style that I can't I, I can't compare to any other to any other filmmaker. Well, then I know that I will probably not ever have you watch an elephant sitting still. Is that even stiller than than this movie? <laughs> Yeah, it's a four-hour movie oh, wow. directed by Hugh Bo before he passed away, and it's just about uh, four people that connect in a day. Okay. Yeah, and it's gorgeous, but it might be a lot for yeah. you. <laughs> like, I didn't dislike this movie. Certainly, like I, I did enjoy it, but there were times where I'm like, this movie does not need to be two hours. <laughs> That's fair. But what what moved it about you? What what made you be like, ah, oh, I understand what Scott's doing here. You know, the the layering of of time and the exploration of one's past through a sort of you know a a, a literal journey that is also metaphysical, um, and also the the exploration of of one's own identity, because uh, Jen has met over the internet an American man an ex-military man and he has come over to sort of like they're married i i guess but it seems like mm -hmm. their their relationship is more like taking care of each other physically because um she's disabled and he has um early onset alzheimer's and arthritis so i think they both need like medical caregivers but, and you know, and through her conversations, you get the idea, or she reveals that she was also once married to a soldier, but she describes him as a monster. But one of the soldiers that she's taking care of is extraordinarily gentle and almost like saintly with her, and you know, I, I think Jen is searching for a, a purpose. You know, she seems to be retired. I, I get the, like a retired nurse, and now she's doing this mm -hmm. work voluntarily. 
and I think she's somebody who is searching for spiritual fulfillment as well as like, you know, uh, romantic fulfillment and you know she encounters like a, a couple goddesses who are uh, on yeah. earth just dressed like normal ladies and and I love how she just sort of takes it in stride and you know tells some of her fellow nurses about it and and is sort of you know like buoyed by the experience it's not like it's some sort of um on the road, like struck down on the road to Damascus, sort of meeting with with your deities. It, it's something that like brings a smile to her face, and is more in tuned with, um, you know, not all reverence, not all faith is big and tumble. Some of it is personal. Some of it is in between. Some of it is a conversation. Yeah, and I was so taken by, towards the end of the film, um, Jen and one of the other nurses who is a psychic and is connecting to the past lives of some of the patients are touring the forest and they come across these statues and on this one is a stone bench with two lovers sat next to each other and another stone bench is has two skeletons embracing mm-hmm. and like that's an image that I don't think I'll ever forget. Um, cause it's just so evocative of, you know, the, like the, the eternal nature, nature of, of love really. And, you know, like death did not stop this particular couple from embracing and, I, I felt that that um, that was such a like a wonderful thing to just sort of come across in the, in the middle of the woods. It was it was just so striking. When I was when I was working in an old job, working with um, older people uh, in a social work capacity, I was working with a man who's. Um, wife had passed away they'd been together for many years many years you know and he said scott if i impart to you one thing just remember this love survives i know it's simple but sometimes sometimes the the simple stuff hits you know, um, there's that meme circling around uh, trying to explain socialism. And it's it's just uh, it's that meme from the, the newer Planet of the Apes movie where it's uh, apes together strong. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes sometimes the simple stuff, you yeah. know, and, you know, because all we all we have is our connection. Mm-hmm. And and we can only get so close because we are we will never completely be another person. We can just get close. Yeah, and you know, in in this movie, uh, Jen makes a connection with one of the soldiers who who goes by the name It I T T. And you know, at some points, the connection is very maternal, and 
she calls him like my adopted son or our new son and at some points it's clearly romantic but she says to him when you're asleep even the bright city lights seem dull and his response is no one has ever said that to me before and there is a literal motif of lights getting brighter and then going dim and, the, and changing color and it seems like it's a very it's a way of showing spiritual presence without like showing ghosts and um you know towards the end of the film they say to each other suddenly i can read your mind i can see your dream and i can see yours and you know even though i don't even think they figure out exactly what their connection is because it's through thousands of years of history and through this you know disease where one of the participants in this relationship is unconscious for 95 percent of the day but they do have something that keeps them tethered together and you know have you read uh, Victor Frankel's. Uh, have you read any Victor Frankel? I have not. Man's Search for Meaning. Um, well, I've I already sent you a yeah. book, so, and I'm awaiting to hear your uh, thoughts about it. So, I'll I'll wait before sending you another one. But uh, you know, Victor Frankel uh, survived the Holocaust and tried to make sense of it and tried to because he didn't believe the people were evil and tried to make sense of it all and he he created his own form of of psychotherapy and um he he realized amongst other things that what drives us is is meaning authenticity finding importance um and in one of his his deepest moments he's like I grasp the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. And and love means many things. There's 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 familial love, there's romantic love, there's intimate love, there's sexual love, there's transactional love, there's love of surface surf service like love exists in so many ways mm-hmm. and it survives i know we've we talked about the holocaust a lot but almost every episode yeah, well it's uh in in this case um because i did recently finish watching the the ken burns holocaust documentary and you know um speaking of things that oh, like what more can you say about the holocaust in a documentary but i think the way it sort of delineates um everything that the united states didn't do uh during the holocaust is you know infuriating in, in, in a thousand different ways but what i am glad that the documentary does highlight is um, some of the people who really did do all they could to save as many people as they could, and also mm-hmm. some of the, the survivors who were able to make connections even through the Holocaust. Um, you know, like 
Anne Frank's father uh, re- remarried after losing his entire family and, and married, you know, another Holocaust survivor. Um, and it is a testament to the, like, the unbelievable enduring power of the human spirit that we're able to continue from that horror. But at the same time, it is so fucking maddening that we still have celebrities making dumbass anti-Semitic statements in public or that there are political parties making headway with anti-Semitic dog whistling. Um, So, you know, the past is with us. Uh, 3,000 years of anti-Semitism and we haven't been able to exercise that demon from us yet. And it's, it's, it's real fucking frustrating. It really is. And I am... I'm not going to go deeply into that today because, um, you know, if uh, anti-Semitism, something that I think is lost when anti-Semitism is on the rise is that, yes, a lot of people facing anti-Semitism are, in America, many Jews are phenotypically white and uh, deal with and are afforded the white privilege that is that goes with whiteness, which does not also deny anti-Semitism and the fact of anti-Semitism and the danger that anti-Semitism brings. But also there's a lot of people, there's a lot of black and brown Jews and Jews of color and so in their intersection where they're dealing with racism, sometimes racism from white Jews, but or racism from all different places, plus the anti-Semitism, they're greatly more impacted by these actions that happen to be done by people that I believe know better. And you could say, who is he talking about? The thing is, it could be anybody. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean, Scott. And also, you know, um, the same general, like, great replacement lie that the Nazis propagated in the 30s is being used in America on immigrants of all sorts, um, of non-whites of of all sorts. And so the, the same dangers that anti-Semitism has wrought upon the world could be transferred to any oppressed people. Um, And so certainly with the current political landscape, it, it makes me very scared, frankly, uh, for the direction America is heading. Um, And so I'm worried I think it's our it's our responsibility to to do as much as we can to prevent that, and so I'm very grateful to you, Scott, for uh, giving me this opportunity to talk about these thing these very heavy topics while also you know talking about movies that that we love. 
Exactly. And that's sometimes just like the it's just the conversation just really is education is elevation. That's it. I didn't come up with that, but um you know, on that note, let's all be excellent to each other and and meditate and consider watching these movies and let us know what you thought about them. I, yeah, I'd appreciate um, feedback for sure. Yeah, and and uh, off record, we'll talk about what the next episode will be. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. All right. Be good to each other. <laughs>